This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Here we go, Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Our world has changed a lot over the past 500 years. Most of us can't really imagine just how much it has changed over the last 500 years. There are some interesting reminders that uh, give us a clue. Here's some things I've read concerning the 1500s. Most people got married in June because they took their yearly bath in May. (laughs) And they still smelled pretty good by June, hence the popularity of June weddings. However, they were starting to smell, so brides carried a bouquet of flowers to hide the body odor. So kids, when you see a bride walking down the aisle with flowers and you wonder what that's about, baths consisted of a big tub of hot water. The man of the house had the privilege of going first and enjoying the nice clean water. For the record, that's not how you love your wife as Christ loved the church. Then came all the sons and the other men, then the women, and finally the children, and last of all, babies. By then the water was so dirty you could actually lose someone in it. Hence the saying, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Most houses had thatched roofs, very thick straw piled high, very high, with no wood underneath. Uh, It was the only place for animals to get warm, so all the dogs and the cats, other small animals, mice, rats, bugs included, uh, lived in the roof. And when it rained, it became slippery, and sometimes the animals would slip and fall off the roof or out of the roof, hence the saying, it's raining cats and dogs. (laughs) However, there was nothing to stop things from falling into the house. Uh, That posed a real problem in the bedroom where bugs and other droppings could really mess up your nice clean bed. Hence, a bed with big posts and a sheet hung over the top afforded some protection. That's how canopy beds came into existence. The floor was dirt. Only the wealthy had something other than dirt, hence the saying, dirt poor. Most people had little meat, very little meat, but sometimes they could obtain pork, which made them feel special. And when visitors came over, they would hang up their bacon to show off. It was a sign of wealth that a man could bring home the bacon. They would cut off a little to share with guests, and they would all sit around and chew the fat. Lead cups were used to drink the ale or whiskey. The combination would sometimes knock people out for a short time. Someone walking along the road would take them for dead and prepare them for burial. They were laid out on the kitchen table for a couple of days. And the family would gather around and eat and drink and wait to see if they would wake up. Hence the custom of holding a wake. England is an old country, not very large. They started running out of places to bury people, so they would dig up coffins and take the bones to a bone house and reuse the grave. When reopening these coffins, one out of 25 coffins was found to have scratch marks on the inside, and they realized that they were burying people alive. So they thought that they would tie a string on the wrist of the corpse, lead it through the coffin and up through the ground and tie it to a bell. Someone would have to sit out in the graveyard all night, the graveyard shift, 
to listen for the bell, thus someone could be saved by the bell or was considered a dead ringer. I am aware that some of these observations are disputed. (laughs) Yes, things have changed quite a bit in 500 years, but these changes pale in comparison to the differences between the way things are now and how they will be in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life, Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement. It was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. 
On no day will his gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Five aspects to the new heavens and the new earth we'll consider today. The first is, it's creation renewed. It's the creation renewed. I don't know what you've been told heaven will be like. Many people have carried around with them uh, notions of heaven that make me squirm. In 2014, Rolling Stone magazine interviewed Stephen King, who spent his career writing about death. And when the interviewer asked, do you hope to go to heaven? He responded, I don't want to go to the heaven they learned about when I was a kid. To me, it seems boring. The idea that you're going to lounge around on a cloud all day and listen to guys play harps? I don't want to listen to harps. I want to listen to Jerry Lee Lewis. Well, there's some sentiment to that that I can relate to. Maybe the first thing to notice about heaven is that it's a new heaven and a new earth. A new earth. It's not described in disembodied or ethereal or amorphous language. It's a new heaven and a new earth. A new earth. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul offers us a discourse on our resurrection, the believer's resurrection, and he details the fact that we will all have a physical existence in heaven. Christian, you will have a body in heaven. You will have a body in a new material heaven and new material earth. Now, people are going to ask, what kind of body am I going to have? I don't know. I don't know. I know that, you know, Epcot, you know, Epcot you got test track, you're waiting in line, you get to these screens, touch screens where you can design your own car. Right? I don't know that heaven's going to be like that. <laughs> Whereas you're waiting in line, you get to design your own body. I don't think it's going to work like that, but it's going to be great. It's going to be great. You will have a body in a new material heaven and a new material earth. Heaven will entail a new earth, 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 just like this one only renewed. In fact, if you think about it, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, this earth would have more than sufficed. The bodies that God gave Adam and Eve would have sufficed. Because of sin, God's first earth, this earth, has been subjected to decay. However, it still retains aspect to its former glory. So imagine a new earth. Imagine an earth that's not been subjected to decay. Let's imagine resurrection bodies perfected. I've only ever tasted freshly picked strawberries grown from corrupted soil using corrupted taste buds. What will strawberries taste like in the new heavens and the new earth? I've only ever walked through defiled arboretums taking in flowers that fall far short of the perfect brilliance they once had. What will colors be like in heaven? But what about this mention of no sea? You know, for a beach addict like me, this sounds like an enormous disappointment. Well, if it sounds a little off, maybe we need to do a little further digging. We've done this already as we've journeyed through this book. Um, very likely this is symbolic because this is 
apocalyptic literature. It's symbolic. What is this? What is this no sea in the new heavens and the new earth? How's that understood? Well, sea in the book of Revelation is often used as a reference to the origin of cosmic evil. Rather than commenting then on the hydrological properties of the new heavens and the new earth, God is saying there will be no evil, no trials, no afflictions due to the ungodly world. There won't be an ungodly world in the new heavens and the new earth. I'm quite confident there will be oceans and beaches in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I've only ever experienced corrupted beaches with corrupted senses. What will beaches be like in the new heavens and the new earth? God created a material world, and we will inhabit a material new earth with material bodies. We'll shake hands, and we'll hug, and we'll talk. And we'll have an eternity to explore our new earthly home and those with whom we share it. It's creation renewed. Second, the end of sorrow. Verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So all the troubles and the pain that plague us in this life will be no more. There'll be no more occasions for mourning, no more occasions for crying. Death will finally be defeated. The story of the new creation is life and it's flourishing and it's deep and lasting joy that transcends and surpasses any joy you've ever tasted in this world. The greatest joy you've experienced in this life is a droplet compared to the ocean of joy that awaits you. And the imagery of this verse is actually more poignant than that. It has us entering into glory with the tears of our sorrowful lives still upon our cheeks. Most lovely of all, notice it will be God's own hand that wipes them away. The imagery expresses both the sheer pain of life in this fallen world and our loving Heavenly Father greeting us, wiping away the last tears we will ever shed and bidding us to come and weep no more forever and ever. The prophet Isaiah wrote about this day that John is telling us about. He wrote about it in Isaiah 66, a time when there would be no more tears. This is what he said. This is what the Lord says. I will give Jerusalem a river of peace and prosperity. The wealth of the nations will flow to her. Her children will be nursed at her breasts, carried in her arms and held in her lap. I will comfort you there in Jerusalem as a mother comforts her child. I don't mean to be indelicate here, but the imagery is of a screaming baby being comforted at the breast of mom. When our kids were little babies at the nursing age, there was something about the noise, tears, and contorted faces. Yes, that was annoying after a while, but there was something about all of that that I could relate to. You can relate to it. 
All of that unpleasantness vanishes in the blink of an eye when my wife, in her words, would hook them up. (laughs) As you comfort a screaming baby, as you comfort a screaming baby, this is the picture Isaiah and John are painting for us as we enter glory. The tears are gone. The crying is gone. All that's left is joy. Third, this place is characterized by permanent security. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. On them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You know, one of the creative questions that I've heard several times over the years in ministry is, how do we know we won't mess it up once we're there? Adam and Eve were given this perfect paradise, perfect paradise, and somehow they managed to muck it all up. How do we know that's not going to happen? Well, I give you these verses. I give you these verses. What assurance do you have? These are, these are the words. The imagery portrays security. You know, for the 2.4 million Christians who've been martyred since the year 2000, this is welcome comfort. The reference to no night doesn't, isn't likely having to do with the orbits of planetary bodies, but rather night is when those bent on conquest would often do their worst. Nighttime provided cover for the criminal lying in wait. Nighttime was dangerous in the ancient world. Dangerous in the ancient world. In the new heavens and the new earth, not only is there no nighttime threat, but there's no reason to close the city gates. Leaving the city gates open at night would have been unthinkable in the ancient world. You don't do that. But here in the new heavens and the new earth, they don't ever have to be shut. Ever. There are no parts of town that need to be avoided. There are no bad neighborhoods. It isn't possible to take a wrong turn. Every inch you travel is paradise. And John says, nothing impure will ever enter. This is likely an allusion back to the Garden of Eden. When God gave Adam his responsibilities concerning the garden, one of those carried with it the idea of keeping out impure things. Part of Adam's job was security guard. Thus, we're given an answer to the question, how did the serpent get inside the Garden of Eden in the first place? It was Adam's job to guard the garden, but presumably he failed. He allowed an impure thing to enter. The new heavens and the new earth possess remarkable similarities to Eden. So we're promised in this new earth, in verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Listen, there will be no inherent sin inside us, nor will there be any temptation to sin or spiritual threat outside us. There will be permanent, physical, moral, and spiritual security. Fourth, the holiness of God's people. Fourth aspect of the new heavens and the new earth is the holiness of God's people. You remember the hearing, seeing motif that occurs throughout the book. 
In Revelation 5, John hears about a lion but sees a lamb. He hears about a lion, but he sees a lamb. They're different images for the same entity. In that case, Jesus is both lion and lamb. In Revelation 7, John hears about 144,000, but turns and sees a multitude. In that case, the totality of God's redeemed people. Something similar happens here. John hears about the bride, but is shown a city. Two different ways of talking about the same thing. Verse 11, it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So are we talking about a people, or are we talking about a place? And the answer is both. As the heavenly Jerusalem is described in these metaphorical terms, the picture is both a people and a place. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold is pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, ruby, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, turquoise, jacinth, amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass. Amazing imagery. In other words, there's a purity about God's people, a glory about God's people, a brilliance to the city as the people of God. We are holy. We are holy. Now here's the question. Why is John showing this vision with this emphasis on the holiness of the city? Why is he drawing this attention? Why is he putting this in front of us? Why the emphasis on the glory, the brilliance, the purity, the unblemishedness of God's people, the holiness of God's people? Well, I think in a book whose trajectory is in the direction of victory, I think so... It's so the readers of this book will coordinate their present lives in this world with their destination in the age to come. In other words, if our destiny is to dwell in a holy city, in the light of God, to radiate the light of God's glory like a most radiant jewel, then this surely shapes our calling now. So we can ask a probing question. If God's word is not changing you in the direction of spiritual holiness and moral purity, then on what basis do you expect to be part of the holy city, the new Jerusalem? Kevin DeYoung has some sharp questions for us to think about. He says, if you dislike a holy God now, why would you want to be with him forever? If worship does not capture your attention at present, what makes you think it will thrill you in some heavenly future? If ungodliness is your delight here on earth, what will please you in heaven where all is clean and pure? You will not be happy there if you are not holy here. Jonathan Edwards illustrates it something like this. Maybe you've been a part of choirs in the past, voluntarily or involuntarily. Maybe you're not a, a note reader. You don't read music. Um, so you have to have someone plunk out the notes for you at the piano. A song you've never heard before, right? You're supposed to learn to sing this thing. It's a song you've never heard before. You've got to have someone plunk out the notes 
for you and they plunk out the notes and you're trying to learn this thing, right? This, you're learning by rote. Yeah, you're learning by rote. Growing in holiness and godliness is like learning a new song. But you need to put the work in because the song you're learning to sing is the song you'll be singing for eternity in heaven. If learning the song of holiness is not interesting to you now, why would you want to sing it forever? There was a story told of a Christian man who was struggling through a difficult season, life season, struggling uh, under a number of losses so that he wondered what God was doing with his life. And as he walked dejectedly through the city, he encountered a construction site where a massive cathedral was about to be completed. And a stonemason caught his eye. And the stonemason was working very carefully on a decorative piece. And the man asked him what he was doing. And the worker said, I'm shaping this down here so that it'll fit up there. Christian... God is shaping you down here so you'll fit up there. The efforts you put into growing in godliness are shaping us down here so we'll fit up there. The suffering and the hardships you go through are what God uses to shape us down here so we'll fit up there. The holiness of God's people is an aspect of the new heavens and the new earth not to be missed. Fifth and finally, the new heavens and the new earth is characterized by the fact that God is with us. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, And as wide and high as it is long, 12,000 stadia is about 1,400 miles. Now, as a crow flies from here, that gets you just beyond the tip of the Florida Keys or out to Phoenix, Arizona, Spokane, Washington, and approximately 650 miles off the coast of New York City, somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. What's even more impressive is that the city is 1,400 miles high. Mount Everest is six miles high. So 1,400 miles gets us through the troposphere, stratosphere, mesosphere, thermosphere, and into the exosphere. At that point, I've got one question. Who's living on the top floor? (laughs) Actually, this is symbolic. Notice the dimensions. Notice the dimensions make the heavenly city a cube. It's a cube. And don't forget, we're not talking about a place only. We're talking about people. So what's the significance of a cube? There's only one other cube in the Bible. The most holy place inside the tabernacle. You remember the one? The high priest? Only once a year, following very meticulous instructions, could enter. Because this is where God Dwelled. This is his home. This is his presence. And so threatening was it that they would put bells around Aaron's robe and they would tie a rope to him? 
As long as they outside could hear the bells jingling, they knew that he was moving around, he was doing his work. But if they ever stopped jingling, they know he must have messed something up. They could pull him out. This is the dwelling place of God. So the whole city, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the people of God constitute the dwelling place of God. God with us, among us, in us, around us. Heaven is the most holy place. But we can push this further. We won't simply be in the most holy place. We will actually be the most holy place. I know it's tough to wrap your mind around that. We will be the most holy place. Last summer, we pondered the eternality of the tripersonal God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed. The tripersonal God is ultimate reality. And more than that, they enjoy a relationship of perfect love. The, the tripersonal God has always been infinitely happy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always been infinitely happy. You and I have never known the infinite happiness of the tripersonal God. Now, the imagery of Revelation 21 is of a wedding. We, the church, are married to Jesus, the groom. And at that point in time, we become the dwelling place of God. See, a marriage makes two people one. In marriage, a man and a woman become one flesh. The new heavens and the new earth is the one fleshing of God and the church. In other words, you know what this means? On that day, believers will be brought into the very internal life of the tri-personal God where we will know and experience for the first time what it is to be infinitely happy. God with us, among us, in us, around us. That's what makes heaven a paradise. So something to think through. I wonder if, if you could have heaven with no sickness, no evil, with all your family and friends, with all the delicious food you could ever eat, with leisure activities galore, with all the natural beauties and physical pleasures to enjoy, could you be happy in heaven with all of this if Jesus wasn't there? God with us, among us, in us, around us is what makes heaven a paradise. Do you long for God? Do you long for God? Creation renewed, the end of sorrow, permanent security, God's people made holy, God with us, among us, in us, around us. That's what you have to look forward to. And it's not just interesting tidbits about the future. All of this is useful now. All of it is useful now. Some years ago, I heard a tale about two men who had been captured and thrown into a deep, dark dungeon where they were forced to serve 10 years of hard labor as punishment. And just before going in, the first man learned that his wife and his child were dead. 
The second man heard that his wife and his child were alive and they were safe and they were waiting for him. So they entered this deep, dark dungeon to serve 10 years of hard labor. The first man, after the first year or two, just sort of curled up and withered away and died. The second man persevered. He was courageous. He had a pep in his step. As he served his time and 10 years later, he walked out a free man. They experienced their now in completely different ways based on what they believed about their future. They experienced their now in completely different ways based on what they believed about their future. What do you believe about your future? What do you believe about your future? It has a tremendous power to impact how you experience your now. Let's pray. Lord, I pray we would take time each day to contemplate our future. Creation renewed, creation renewed, the end of sorrow, permanent security. Your people made holy, and us experiencing for the first time what it is to be in your perfect presence. That's what we have to look forward to. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be our hope in the moments of trial we're living through today. Yes, it's hard. It's hard. But you've prepared for us a bright future. In those moments when our heads are held low, would you lift our chins to focus on the life to come? we may find strength and courage in today's troubles. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.